we can look with God's help at verse 34. After the eunuch reads that passage of scripture from Isaiah chapter 53, he turns to Philip and he says to him, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, there was more than one road uh, going down from Jerusalem to Gaza. The Greek here seems to indicate that the desert place really referred to here is actually the deserted road, which is the quieter of the two roads. And I suppose in a way it's a bit of a surprise to find a man of this kind of stature and dignity on the quietest road from Jerusalem to Gaza, especially when he's on the first leg of a far longer journey. He's actually on his way to the African kingdom of Ethiopia, which is thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. He's not on his own. In fact, there's a a considerable number of people with him, and they're all in his retinue. They're with him because they're connected to him. And the fact of the matter is that although he's traveling on a quiet, unused, deserted road, he's traveling on that road in style because he's being carried in something like a sedan or a palanquin. And the reason for that is because he is actually a very distinguished person. He is none other than the Chancellor of the Ethiopian Exchequer, directly responsible to Queen Candace of Ethiopia. Now, it's easy to think uh, of the Ethiopian kingdom as not being a significant kingdom and maybe to think of it being long ago as an even less significant kingdom. But in thinking like that, we're far wrong. It always was uh, uh, an ancient kingdom of great dignity. Up until about 1000 BC, it was certainly well inferior to Egypt. But by the time you reach around 800 or 750 BC, it had actually overtaken Egypt. That gives you some idea of the importance of the Ethiopian kingdom. It was fully independent, and it was actually ruled by a king. But strangely enough, the king was always considered too sacred or too divine to actually exercise rule. So the rule was always in the hand of the queen. Candace here sounds like a personal name, but historians are no more convinced that Candace was actually a dynastic name, something like Pharaoh, just as every Egyptian king was Pharaoh, that every Ethiopian queen was Candace. It's quite a strange thing, really, but it's, a, it's an illustration of the old saying that a man can have the authority while the woman has the power. Well, here is a, a literal example of that. The king had the authority, but it was the woman who really wielded the power. Now, this man is on a long journey. In fact, it's a journey that's well over 2,000 miles. Now, we have no way of knowing if he uh, carries out any business uh, in connection with his post 
while he's in Jerusalem. It's not impossible that he did, because there was a long relationship between uh, Israel and Ethiopia, especially under its ancient name of Cush. That relationship went way back into the days of David and Solomon. But it's quite clear from the scripture that even if he did do business of that kind, financial business on behalf of the queen, that was not the reason he went to Jerusalem. The scripture tells us quite specifically that the reason for his going to Jerusalem was to worship God. And that in itself is a staggering thing. We're so used to thinking of the days of the Old Testament as days of being pretty much exclusively days of blessing of God upon Israel as his ancient people, that we forget that the things of God had their own way under God's hand, in God's supervision, and according to its purpose, they had their own way of percolating out to other peoples and to other nations. And this man is one of these other peoples in other countries who first became interested in the God of the Jews, and then more than interested, he became a worshipper of the God of the Jews. Now, we don't know how easy that was for him or how difficult it was for him to be a chancellor of the exchequer in the kingdom of Ethiopia and at the same time to be a worshipper of the God of the Jews. But just as God enabled Naaman, the captain of the Syrian army, to be faithful in his own location in Syria, so God would have enabled this Ethiopian chancellor of the exchequer to function as a worshipper of God in Ethiopia. Now, we're not told how he first came to that position. It's very easy to assume that he did so because he knew believers in God. Although the Jews were dispersed from the days of the Babylonian captivity onwards, and they were, even when they came back from captivity, it was actually a small fraction of them that came back. We tend to forget that. I think it was in the order of 56 or 58,000 that came back from the captivity. The rest stayed and spread out. So around the time of Christ, you have got substantial Jewish populations in many, many countries all over the world. For example, in Alexandria in Egypt, you had around about 100,000 Jews. And in Ethiopia, which was the second African kingdom after Egypt, you would have a substantial number of Jews too. And again, a common mistake that we make is the mistake of thinking that everybody in Christ's day who was a Jew was a Pharisee, all hypocrites, all unbelievers at heart. But that's not true. Uh, of course, a lot of the attention goes upon them because a lot of the religious rulers were of that kind. But many of the people were ordinary, God-fearing people like ourselves. They didn't rise to prominence in any particular kind of way. They just went about their own business and their callings as God had appointed them in their own homes and in their own families. And the Jews in Ethiopia were like that, and many of them would have impressed those who were locally born, those who were Ethiopians, uh, as the name means those who were burnt in face, because they were dark-skinned. This is a black man. Uh, and of course... Uh, that's a reminder to us that the Church of Christ was African before it was European. It was a black church before it was a white church. These things are just useful to remember. But in any case, it's quite easy to believe that it was the witness of people like that 
that impressed such a man as this. And he's obviously interested enough uh, to buy a Bible because he's reading it here in his chair. Now, Bibles in those days wouldn't have been cheap. They were certainly, uh, if I can use the word printed, or rather written or produced in Alexandria in substantial numbers. He has a copy of the Old Testament. And here he is, as he's probably done before, perhaps year after year after year, at the time of the Feast of the Passover, he goes up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, one thing that makes that uh, particularly interesting is that he does so as a eunuch and as a foreigner. He is both a eunuch and a foreigner. The two type of people that Isaiah singled out in his prophecy. Now, as he read the Bible, there was plenty to offend him if he wanted to be offended. Um, Of course, we live in an age when people seem to want to be offended. Plenty in the city of Jerusalem to offend him as well. In fact, he only had to walk into the temple of God in Jerusalem and there was plenty there to be offended by. First thing, I suppose, is that he is himself in the line of Ham. It is from that branch of Noah's family that he himself descends. There's a curse pronounced in that family in the Bible. That curse didn't mean that they couldn't come to know the Lord, but it certainly did mean that they were denied very specific privileges. Could have taken a half about that and said, well, if that's what it says about my people, don't want to read anymore. He is, of course, a eunuch as well. Now, it was very common for leading officials in governments long ago to be eunuchs, particularly if you had a queen at the head of a government. The safety of a queen and of her harem was of particular importance, and the paternity of any child born to a queen, particularly if there was the idea of divinity attached to a child, that was very important as well. So no one was as safe around a queen as a eunuch was. And people in high office tended to be emasculated, which is an awful thing, but you see it in all these cultures. Of course, the other thing that a eunuch didn't have was this consuming ambition to further the interests of his own children and his own family. And kings and queens were so wary of that in government in ancient times. They were aware of people around them who were plotting and manoeuvring to get their own families into positions of power and influence. Well, there's no danger of a eunuch trying to further the ambition of his own family or of his own dynasty. So eunuchs, as a rule, tended to be more loyal and dependable. And this man is a eunuch. But as he read his Old Testament, he would have come across a passage in the Bible connected with eunuchs. And a passage in which God requires that eunuchs would not be allowed inside his own temple. Now, when we come across, you see, that kind of thing can cause offence. Maybe even if I say it right now, it can cause offence. You say, well, why does God do that? Well, that's a good question. But it's important that you ask that question, that you ask it humbly, because perhaps God has an answer. 
The fact of the matter is that God chose the state of the eunuch to function in a symbolic way, just like he chose leprosy as a disease to function in a certain symbolic kind of way. Just as leprosy symbolized the condition of somebody who's consumed and decaying in sin, so the eunuch symbolized the condition of somebody who bears no fruit. And so God said, for the purposes of his own typology, for the purposes of his own lessons and how he wants to teach them, that the eunuch would be forbidden from entering the temple. Again, that did not mean that a eunuch couldn't be saved, but it certainly did mean that in practical terms, the eunuch lacked privilege. And if he wanted to be offended, well, here's his chance. It is easy to take offence, especially in an age where we easily take offence. I remember, I may have mentioned this before, and if I have, forgive me, but I remember once speaking to a woman who was very interested in the gospel, very interested in the gospel, but she told me just up front, she said, I could never be a member, she says, of a church as long as the Bible says that headship in marriage belongs to a man and not to a woman. It was as stark as that. She had her own views on the particular form of the relationship between men and women. And as long as the word of God said that, she said, well, I couldn't be a member of such a church. Or if that's involved in being a Christian, I couldn't be a Christian. Now, there's a real tragedy in that. There always is when, when we make these rules for ourselves and we adopt these positions very sanctimoniously quite often and we say, well, this is what I believe and this is how I believe this functions. And all we are doing is shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven upon ourselves. The Lord was shutting no door of the kingdom of heaven upon that woman. She was shutting it upon herself. And, of course, the eunuch himself too could have said, oh, well, if that's said about a eunuch here, I don't want to know. I want to know about the Bible, I don't want to know about Jews, I don't want to know about their history, I don't want to know about the temple or the priesthood or an altar, as long as the Bible says that a eunuch is not permitted to enter into the temple of God. But God has reasons for all these things. And if we press on, perhaps we'll find some of the reasons for these things. And if that woman had really pressed on the woman I was talking to, she would discover that God has a wonderful thing in store, a wonderful thing and many wonderful things in store for both men and women. But she can't get there because she can't get over her hurdle. You need to press on when it comes to God. You need to press on with God. God is his reasons. God is the source of all reason. God is the source of everything, the source of you and me and destiny, and future. And whenever you come across something that seems to be a stumbling block, you've got to get over it. I sometimes put it like this, and I don't know if it works, but it certainly works for me. If I, if I read in the scriptures that God had prohibited somebody who came from the island of North Uist to be an elder in the church, and you said, well, would I take offense like that? No. And I'm quite honest about that. Why? Because God said so. And he has his reasons for saying so. So be it. You're saying, ah, well, you're only saying that. No, I mean that. I absolutely mean that. If God had said such a thing, then who am I to say, oh, well, that's unjust of you? And if God says that a man has the headship in a marriage relationship, God says so. And whenever we complain about things like that, 
all that shows at the end of the day is pride. Pride in myself, pride in my gender, pride in my culture, pride in my nationality, pride in my gifts. And it's that pride that will keep all of us out of the kingdom of God. As long as we dictate our moral standards, our standards of what are acceptable upon God, then that will keep us out of the kingdom. This text I keep quoting again and again because it lies at the heart of everything to do with the gospel. Except you become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. And whoever therefore humbles himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why is it that we're not in the kingdom of heaven? Strip away this reason and that. Pride. Pride in ourselves. Who and what we think we are. That is what is keeping us out of the kingdom of heaven. Whether we've come to understand that or not. So the fact that he was a eunuch could in itself discourage him. But there was more than that to discourage him. When he would visit Jerusalem, he would discover something that perhaps he didn't really see in the Jews round about him in Ethiopia, and that's their fierce nationalism. By this time, the Spirit of God had nearly gone from their midst. In fact, another uh, 35 years or so, and the Spirit of God was out of there. The temple would be raised to the ground, the city of Jerusalem raised to the ground too. And their religious zeal which ought to have a missionary seal and a compassion for the foreigner and a concern for the foreigner, all that had ossified, hardened and calcified into a kind of fierce nationalistic exclusivism. We are the people. And this black man only had to turn up in Jerusalem and he would find plenty of people and say, well, what are you doing here? And who are you? They would look down on foreigners and strangers. The true people of God wouldn't. The true people of God wouldn't. But you can sometimes tell the people of God from those who aren't really the people of God just by their attitudes. By their attitudes. God said, remember the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. You were strangers in Egypt. They took you in. They gave you a place, they gave you a home. Now, I'm not here commenting, actually, politically commenting on immigration or anything like that at all. That's not my concern. There are problems with all these things that are quite complex. And once you decide to import not just people, but their cultures and their religions, and once you give these religions official status along with your own, you're doing a lot more than letting strangers in. There's no doubt about that. You're doing a lot more than letting strangers in. But at the same time, Remember the stranger because you were a stranger in Egypt. I sometimes had reason to think of that when I was in Glasgow. You may think, well, how would you think of that in Glasgow? Well, I don't belong to Glasgow. The first immigrant population in Glasgow was really Highland people, was it not? After that, the Irish. Then after that, others and others and others. But there were large immigrant pools in Glasgow of people who were hungry. That's why they went to Glasgow. They needed work. That's why they went there. And they were dependent on people there, welcoming them and allowing them to settle. Is that not right? Who was I in Glasgow? A stranger. And it brought it home to me that if I, if I myself was dependent on someone else welcoming me, 
I must be careful to welcome them too. Now this, praise God, is a welcoming congregation. And I think that everyone who has come through the door has said it is a welcoming congregation. But let that always be true of us. Let's keep being like that. And whoever turns up at our door, let's have the heart uh, to introduce them to the fellowship of the gospel and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that will make its demands on them and on us. And it may require some offensive things sometimes to be said to us and to them. But let's have the heart for the stranger. This Ethiopian eunuch wouldn't have seen too much of it in Jerusalem. And as well as the nationalism of many of the Jews locally, there was also the fact that the state of the temple had fallen into shocking spiritual, a shocking spiritual condition. The only court of the temple that was open to him to go into was the court of the foreigners. And you'll remember as we looked at this recently, that court was full of what? Well, it was supposed to be full of prayer. It was full of money and animals, the exchange of money, shops, the bleating of the animals. These people turned up for the first time and expected fellowship, doctrine, prayer. And that's what they got. No sign of worship at all. And there was this sign, you know, the next door um, that you would pass through was the door that went into another court of the temple. And above the door was no Gentile passes here on pain of death. There's a lot there for him to take offense at if he wants to take offense at it. But you know, friends... (laughs) We get offended far too easily. And for that matter, we all get discouraged far too easily. Sometimes even God himself puts, let me say it carefully, he puts a a discouragement in our way sometimes just to test how strong our desire is. You know, if faith is going to save you, it's got to be real faith. Real faith is a, a strong thing, even in its weakest form. Faith is something that won't take no for an answer. Faith is a persevering thing. Faith is, in a good sense, a stubborn thing. Faith wants what it needs to get, and faith won't stop until it gets it. The Lord Jesus Christ said himself that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent must seize it by force. That's quite an unusual expression. It's quite a staggering expression when you think of it. The the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent must take it by force. And the kind of faith that gets its way to Christ and gets into the kingdom of heaven is a faith that just pushes aside all obstacles. To change the figure, you hurdle them all until you get at the object of your faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Take another foreigner. Maybe some of you know the foreigner that I'm going towards. That's the Syrophoenician woman. She's not from far away in Ethiopia. She's just a bit further north in the land of the Syrophoenicians. She was chasing Christ because she needed help for her daughter. Uh, As I often say, and as the Bible often says, so many of these critical situations are people wanting help in their families. Sometimes the disorder and the the, the disarray and the chaos... 
and the spiritual darkness that comes into our homes that sometimes make us look for the Lord. And sometimes when we haven't got the sense to look for the Lord for ourselves, we suddenly get the sense to look for the Lord for our family. But the first thing the Lord does in such circumstances is to say, well, find me for yourself first and then you'll find me for your family. But this woman comes and she travels miles to get a hold of the Lord Jesus and she's following him and crying after him. And the scripture tells us that deliberately the Lord was silent. It's not what we expect, is it? She called all the more loudly and at last the Lord answers. But it's not an encouraging answer. The answer that he sends through his disciples is, I've only been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that was true. Paul calls him a minister to the circumcision. There's another side to it, but that's the side that he puts very deliberately and for a reason. She's not going to back off. If she wanted to take offence, she could have taken offence. But she keeps asking. Why? Because she needs the Lord. And when your soul needs the Lord, you've got to carry on. And eventually the Lord turns around and he says, It's not right, he says, to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. The dogs. What an astonishing expression to use. Except that instead of using the word for the scavenging dog that scavenged around their cities and towns and villages, the Lord deliberately changed the word. He uses the Greek word that refers to the little dogs uh, that you have as a pet in your house. And he has a reason for doing that. In the midst of his apparent rejection, he leaves a little hook for her too, to get a hold of. And she gets a hold of it. And why does she get a hold of it? Because she's got faith. And faith just gets a hold of these things. Faith isn't concerned with what's putting you off. Faith is concerned with the slightest thing that's attracting you. Now, maybe some of you have been easily put off the Lord Jesus Christ. Something you heard, something that was said. A Christian who did this, or a Christian who did that. Or a minister who said this, or a minister who said that. Or whatever. Or something that you came across in the word of God. Oh, well, it was as easy as that to walk away. But if your soul is bothering you, it won't be that easy to walk away. If your soul is bothering you, you'll look for the truth. If your soul is bothering you, you'll go past these rejections. Whether these rejections are real or apparent, you'll go past them. And in fact, this woman had the sense of turning an apparent ground of rejection into a ground of appeal. And she famously says to the Lord, yes, she says, I know that the children's bread uh, is not to be cast to the dogs, but, but you said little dogs, did you not? And is it not the custom in all our houses, when we are finished our meal, that we will wipe a piece of bread in our house and we will give it to the dog that sits patiently waiting at the master's table? Is that not our custom? That in our homes and families we remember the little dogs in our homes. Ah, says the Lord, woman, he says, great is your faith. Be it unto you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. 
You've got to press on, friends, until you get hold of this man. You've got to press on openly, humbly, and prayerfully. You imagine, for, an, you imagine for example, if, if um, an Arab uh, came into our services. And here we are singing psalms about Israel and God's blessing upon Jerusalem and so on. You could understand in one way how we might say, oh, right, I'm out of here, it's not for me. Unless he really wants to know. And if he really wants to know, he'll find out a remarkable thing. As he really digs and searches in the Bible, he will discover that it's God's plan for the children of Ishmael, the children of Esau, the children of Isaac, to find their way and to be reunited under the true heir of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, making one new man of the Jew and of the Arab. Some of us are privileged to know certain congregations in Israel which are a mystery to the Arab community and a mystery to the Israeli community. And why are they a mystery? Because they're both happily worshipping together the Son of God, the true heir, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stick around, you'll get the blessing and the answer. Take offence, and it's your loss. It's your loss. Nobody else is the loser by rejecting Christ except yourselves. Now, the interesting thing about this man is that he's not letting go, and therefore God is not going to let him go either. And the amazing thing, of course, for this man is as well as finding things to discourage him, he's got things to encourage him. Because as he reads on in the Bible, and he's got to read on, you see, because it's, it's near the beginning of the Bible that it says the eunuch needs to stay out. But as he reads into Isaiah, he reads these wonderful words that we read together. I will give to the eunuch a place in my house that is better than sons or daughters. I will give himself personally an everlasting name that will never be cut off. He can read that. And as far as the fact that he's an Ethiopian, well, there may be people who don't like him because he's an Ethiopian, but the fact is that he can read the psalm, which David wrote a thousand years before he himself, the Ethiopian, was born, a psalm which says that Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands to God. The same prophet who also said that an altar to God shall be built in Egypt. Wonderful things. God, whatever God commanded, he commanded for a reason. He's no racist. He's no respecter of persons. The gospel is for all. And as well as these encouragements, there was a remarkable, remarkable encouragement more recently in the actions of the young rabbi from Nazareth who had recently marched into that outer court of the temple, methodically made a whip, a symbolic one, and started driving the animals out, overturning the tables of the money changers and pushing them out of the outer court of the temple, quoting the same passage in Isaiah. Get these things, he says, out of here. Get them out of here. Because it is written that this house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. And for the first time, 
this eunuch, as well as the other foreigners who had turned up for many a year, were at last able to go into the court that was theirs. Here, the word of God, spoken and discussed by many good rabbis as well as bad ones, able to hear prayers, able to participate in worship, instead of the bleating of animals and the clink of the money changers. Now, on this visit to Jerusalem, it's all different, because the city is absolutely ablaze. It's a buzz, as they say, and the temple is exactly the same way. And the reason is because there's a new group of preachers that have moved into the temple, and they're very different from the ones that he was used to hearing. If I was going to say to you that they're speaking his language, I would mean that literally, as well as in the other sense, because the apostles were gifted with the ability to speak in foreign languages. This man would have been well able to negotiate in Hebrew, but he had the privilege of hearing people speaking his own language. There's nothing sometimes that makes a person feel that they belong to something as hearing uh, their own language or being aware of their own custom and culture, being involved in it. And he would have walked into the temple and heard people who didn't know the Cushite language, here they are speaking Ethiopian. And these preachers are full of the Holy Spirit. They're alive. They know what they're speaking about. They're not splitting hairs like the rabbis were, discussing extremely uninteresting questions without end. These people were full of the things of God, full of the things that had to do with life and death and how to get into heaven how to win eternity, how to ever have everlasting life and how to have a real fellowship with God. They were full of all that. They had knowledge. They had power. And they had zeal. And thousands of people were being affected. The temple was never as full as it was in these days. Thousands of people being converted. Thousands of people being baptized. Because thousands of people were being born again. Now, these preachers weren't having everything their own way because the old guard was still present. And the fact of the matter is that in every single nook and cranny of that temple and in all the local synagogues and in the streets of Jerusalem, there's debates everywhere and the debate is all about the man who's just been killed. And that man was the very young rabbi from Nazareth who had just cleared out the money changers and the animals from the temple. Astonishingly, and this man probably couldn't believe it himself, that the man who spoke like no man spake was actually taken out by the rulers of the church, no less, and crucified, crucified, cut off, as we saw last evening and this morning, crucified under a curse. But these preachers are saying that he's actually alive. And there must have been something very tempting in connection with believing them because they were a timid bunch. They were hiding in a place when he was killed. They're not hiding anymore. The reason they're not hiding anymore is because they believe they've seen him. And it's not just the fleeting vision that you sometimes catch when you're deceiving yourself after the departure of someone you've loved. This is a 40-day period of teaching and intensive training by the man who came back from the dead and shocked themselves when he came back from the dead, but proved his return by his wounds in his arms and in his side. He's alive, 
And the reason they're testifying there, in fear of their life, well, in fact, that doesn't matter to them anymore. But the reason they're testifying so powerfully and so wonderfully is because this man lives. And these apostles, powerful as they are, equipped with the power of signs and wonders, are not even relying upon them. They're arguing from Scripture. Because the church in her whole existence for the next thousands of years will not be able to rely on signs and wonders. These apostles were just authenticated by them for the establishment of the word. But the word is what they relied on. And they would rake through the Old Testament and say, See, look at this. Look at this. And now look at what happened to this man. And of course the passage that mattered so much particularly was the one that we were looking at last night and looking at this morning. The servant of God in Isaiah 53. And the burning question in Jerusalem is, who is that? Because these new preachers are saying, it's the man you just crucified. And others are saying, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's an interesting thing that the ancient Jewish expositors all thought that Isaiah 53 referred to the Messiah. From the moment, and you can trace this in their writings, from the moment that Christ appeared and died, they changed the explanation. You'll find them saying that Isaiah 53 is about Jeremiah, the suffering prophet. You'll find them saying that it's about Isaiah himself, that he's talking about himself being the suffering prophet but that God is going to honour him one day. Most of these Jewish expositors say that it's a reference to Israel. She is God's servant. But strangely, she has been brought low. But God will bring her back very high. That has all the persuasiveness of the half-truth. But these new preachers are saying, no. It's not Jeremiah, it's not Isaiah, it's not Israel. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Isaiah 53 is a very interesting one, and uh, I'm, what can I say? I'm, you know, fine, I'm mismanaging my time. But anyway, we'll just go on and see where we are. Uh, a a mission, missionary to the Jews was telling me in England that uh, they were having this event. I can't remember, was it Bournemouth or London? I'm not sure, and it doesn't matter. Um, but he was inviting this woman to come, and he, 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 she was concerned that New Testament scripture would be read and preached from at the meeting. And he said, no, he says, there will be no New Testament scripture read or preached from at the meeting. And uh, the woman came to the meeting, and they had projected on the wall uh, the words of Isaiah 53, or some of the words of Isaiah 53 about him being oppressed and afflicted and um, all these things. And when she came in, she looked at the passage and she said, you said that there was going to be no reading from the New Testament or no proclamation from the New Testament. And he said, well, that's not the New Testament. That's, that's your Bible. And she was shocked. Well, a lot of the Jews are because... They don't read the Old Testament. They just read commentaries on the Old Testament. Sad to say. These commentaries are commentaries that edit our Saviour effectively out. 
But the astonishing thing is that she looked at the projection on the wall and she said, you said you weren't going to read the New Testament. It's no wonder in a way because it's like a page from the New Testament. It's just like a page from the New Testament. But that's the debate that was seething in Jerusalem. And as this man's journeying home, he's got his Bible open and he's thinking about what he's been hearing and he's asking God for help. And what we can say is so far, so good. In that respect, he's in a good place. He's gone to hear the word of God for a start. And by the way, I want you to notice that he's travelled well over a thousand miles to do so. Some of us sometimes don't go to church if it's wet. And as well as doing that, this man is actually thinking and praying about the message that he's heard. How many of us do that? He's opened his Bible and he takes what he heard and he's going back to his Bible to see what he can make of it himself. Because it's all made an impression upon him. But so far, he's only got questions. He's got no answers. But God helps those who ask for it. Make no mistake. The seven eyes of God are always going up and down on the earth. And he's not just looking out for those who are loyal on his behalf, which is what that text says. He's also listening and looking for those who are looking for himself. And God's well aware of the confusion of this man's mind, and he's well aware of the prayer that's going up in his heart, so God sets the wheels in motion. And for that you have to close the curtain here in Gaza, on this hot, dusty road, and you've got to move way up north, 80 miles away, to the city of Samaria. That's where the curtain opens. And that city's a blaze like Jerusalem. Uh, the devil can't win. That's sad for him. It's not sad for us, but he can never win. He persecuted the church in Jerusalem. The preachers are all scattered. The apostle says, we'll just stay here in charge of the Jerusalem church. All of you just go. Go they went and they took the gospel with them. And of course Philip took the gospel to Samaria. He was first of all a deacon. He was found to have the gift of proclamation. He was made an evangelist like Stephen was too. And when the word was preached in, in uh, Samaria there was a revival. And you read that there was great joy in that city. And then suddenly God comes to Philip and he says, Get up, he says. I want you to go to the deserted road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Now, like many things, God says, this is a mystery. Why live here? Why live here to go to the road to Gaza? I mean, where's that? There's no revival in Gaza. God doesn't actually tell him anything about this Ethiopian Chancellor of the Exchequer, nothing. You'll notice again how God guides his people. Sometimes he says a lot, sometimes he says a little. Just go, he says, because I want you to go. Philip possibly thought, like other preachers, that the place couldn't survive without him. Of course he's wrong. God can look after the revival in Samaria. But God wants Philip on the road to Gaza. Why Philip? I don't know. The God could have called a lot of other people. But God called Philip. You're the man, he says. 
you go down to the road going to Gaza. And the reason God asks him to do that is because, the reason God commands him to do that is because God cares cares about the Ethiopian eunuch and he cares about the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And when God cares like that about a soul, he moves heaven and earth to get the word to that soul. Simple as that. He moves heaven and earth to get his own preachers to where the word needs to be heard. What an illustration this is of the wonderful truth that if we seek God, you'll find him. Do you believe that if you seek God, you'll find him? Well, what do you think is going on here? In some senses, this man's in the middle of nowhere. But not as far as God's concerned. Shortly after I came here, I preached a few sermons on the woman of Samaria who went out to a well one afternoon. And she met the Lord Jesus Christ and she came back and she was so full of the Lord that she had found. Except that it was really him who found her, was it not? It's him who went. She was just doing what she did every day. He's the one who mysteriously went out of his way because there was a woman that he had to meet. And that's the same thing that's going on here. And who knows, but it's the same thing that's going on here tonight too. Coming here tonight is something you might ordinarily do on a Sabbath evening. Or it's something you may exceptionally do on the Sabbath evening of a communion. But it may be the case that God is seeking you out because he's heard a cry in your heart. And is it there in your heart? Is it somewhere there deep down in your heart that you want to know really who is this man and is he who he says he is? Because these Christians, at least some of them, seem to have something that I do not have. And I need that. If so, it may not be the case that you're in church here tonight to hear God, but that God is in church tonight to deal with you. And the Lord be praised if that's so. So the master says to Philip, go. And of course, Philip goes. And that's a reminder to us that we're all here to do the will of God. That's true of you, and it's true of me. It's a tragic thing if ministers particularly start seeing the work of the gospel as a career, and if they think somehow that it's the mission of their life to move to ever larger congregations until they arrive at the so-called pinnacle, whatever pinnacle that should be. How different a true minister of the gospel is. Think of Thomas Gospel, who was the immortal author of the fourfold state. Think of him busy by candlelight, with all his teeth rotting, and his jaw giving him excruciating pain pretty much every single day, in a draft cold house with a constantly sick wife, in a tiny little congregation in Ettrick, pouring over Hebrew accents and preaching sermons to the light of that ethnic congregation. He didn't move. Samuel Rutherford, well, he didn't move because God didn't tell him to. He'd have gone if God said go. Samuel Rutherford, some of you know, as a seraphic author of wonderful letters that many people have described as being as near to inspiration as it's possible to get to on this side. 
a man of soaring spiritual imagination and a man of a burning heart. There he is preaching to a few people in Anworth when more than one university in Holland was begging for him to cross over. And for him, one soul in Anworth at in the heavenly glory was everything because he was where God wanted him to be. And that's the important thing for all of us is to be where God wants you to be. And that calling might be spectacular from the outside to look upon or not spectacular. But who cares if it's where God wants us to be? Witnessing in your home to your own family, that's enough of a flock. As someone once complained, was it to Samuel Rutherford? They actually complained. I can't remember if it was to him. I think it was that their flock was so small. And Rutherford said, on the day of judgment, when you give account for your flock, you won't be sorry that there wasn't another one. It's enough to give account for what you have. The best place to do, be, friends, is in the will of God, in your home, in your family. In your church, just be in the will of God and serve God where God has put you. That's our call. And when we get on with that, it's amazing how other things start to fall into place. Whether it's even your marriage or your family, your home or your congregation. Get on with what God has for you right now. And don't be thinking about what might be or what could be or even what was. So the master says, go, and he goes. This time the curtain falls in Samaria. It rises again in Gaza. And this Ethiopian eunuch is still reading the scripture. And suddenly a man draws up out of nowhere. And as Philip runs up to the chariot, he hears the sound of a man's voice reading the Old Testament. He wasn't expecting that. I'm sure he recognised the sedan chair from a distance. He would have probably recognised the country to which it belongs. At least there was definitely an African uh, caravan. Um, And as he nears the main sedan chariot, he hears a voice. And it's reading the Old Testament in the Greek language. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation. He's got a Bible. Would have been expensive. All these words, by the way, were written long before Christ was born. And I don't know if you've ever really, if you're an unbeliever here tonight, I don't know if you ever really thought that through. Sometimes people think, you know, you don't even think about it too much. You say, oh, well, the Bible was just written by people after the event, you know. These so-called prophecies are written after the event. That is frankly impossible. If you had lived in Alexandria in 200 BC, let's be clear, 200 years before Christ was born, you could have bought a copy of Isaiah 53. So how do you explain it all? But Philip's heart leapt. He... He recognized the verses and he knew the verses by heart. And this stranger comes into the Ethiopian eunuch's sedan or his palanquin and he says, I'm hearing you. Are you understanding what you're reading there? And the man says, well, I don't understand it, he says. And how can I? 
unless someone guides me. And he says, what I really want to know, he says, is this prophet, can you, tell, can you explain it? Is the prophet here speaking about himself or is he speaking about somebody else? It's every evangelist's dream. It's every Christian's dream, really, to find someone in God's providence that wants to know. And he couldn't have arranged it better than that, that it's got a passage so full of Christ and he's brimful, ready to share Christ. You know, it's one thing for an opportunity to come your way. It's another thing to be in the spirit to seize that opportunity. That's where we've got to be. And that's where he was, because we're told that he opened his mouth and preached Jesus to him. Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus was the man led to the slaughter. You've heard that the rabbi who cleansed your temple was crucified. What kind of death do you think that was? It was a slaughter. It was a sacrificial slaughter of a substitutionary offering. That's who he was. The lack of justice, yes, he says, there was a lack of justice because he had done no sin. There was no guile in his mouth. You know that. Maybe this Ethiopian eunuch had actually heard the Lord Jesus preach. As for his generation or his seed or his children, Philip says they're being born all over the place. The man that died isn't childless after all. He's today in heaven. He is ruling and bringing to birth an innumerable company, a wonderful family of God. He died like you, the eunuch, childless. But he's not childless now, because he shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. Ah, yes, Philip says, in effect, believe me, he says, this passage is speaking about the man they just crucified, who is God's son and our saviour, and your saviour too. And we don't know how long this preaching lasted, But one thing sure, this man's taking it to heart. It's just God's timing. It's God's timing. And that's always in it. We see things from our side, but from God's side, it's all God's timing. He's in the right place with the right thoughts and the right prayer, and he meets the right evangelist. And that's what always happens when God is taking a sinner into the kingdom. And it just so happens that they pass water on this dry, dusty road. And he says, well, here is water. Can I be baptized? And Philip says, yes, he says, if you believe. And he says, yes, I believe. Philip says, yes, he says, if you believe with all your heart. And he says, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You'll notice that the Ethiopian doesn't say, oh, I'm not sure about that. He doesn't start saying, oh, well, how can I be absolutely sure? It's all my heart. You know, some things are better felt than told. Sometimes your appreciation of the gospel, your embrace of the gospel, your embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ is just a self-evident as the love you have for your husband or your wife or the son or your daughter. If someone was to kind of go behind that and say, how do you know you love your son and your daughter? You would just say, well, I'm sure there's evidences, but I know. 
And that's the way this is. I'm sure there's evidences, but I know in my heart that I am right now embracing this man of whom you speak. He's the one I've been looking for and waiting for, and I believe with all my heart that he's the fulfillment of God's prophecy. He is my Savior and my Lord. He is my Judge and my King. And they both go down into the water. The Baptists like to emphasize that they went down into the water, to which Presbyterians say they both went down into the water. The fact of the matter is that they would have just stood in it, and that Philip would have possibly with his hand or with his vessel, would have simply taken up water and poured it as a symbol of the Holy Spirit or sprinkled it as a symbol of his cleansing, baptizing him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Philip goes on his way to Ashdod and the eunuch, we're told, goes on his way rejoicing. At this point, he's probably not even thinking of what lies ahead. Sometimes it's just as well, you know, that we don't think through what lies ahead. God hides it for good reasons. He's got to take his faith into government with him. He's got to take his faith into number 11 as the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And that's not always going to be easy. But the interesting thing to know is that not long after this, there's a flourishing church in Ethiopia uh, while our ancestors were still in barbarism a flourishing church in Ethiopia and um, I'm quite sure this eunuch had a lot to do with that and that means in effect if that's so and I'm closing with this and I'm just putting it out there if that's so that means that he has had plenty children as well. Just as the Saviour saw his seed, so the Ethiopian eunuch saw his seed too. It was an old film. It was remade. It was uh, about a a man who was a schoolmaster in in a famous English public school, uh, a private school, of course, and... um, in old age, he married, and people were delighted for him. And uh, his wife had a child, but she died in childbirth. The child died too. And on his deathbed, um, he, he had been in the school for, I don't know, something like 50, 60 years. People were saying on his deathbed, oh, isn't it a tragedy that he never had children? And he seemed out of it. But he opened his eyes suddenly, and he said, never had children, he said. I've had thousands of them. Thousands of them. And that's true, you know, of many a man and woman who have never been blessed with children physically in this life. They have been blessed with innumerable seed spiritually. And they shall be made well aware of that in glory. And isn't it remarkable that the man who was himself cut off and considered childness is the man that has just met this eunuch and made him the father of a family in Ethiopia, in fulfilment of a wonderful promise, and given him, as the prophet said, an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Let us pray. Eternal God, give us grace always to be 
reconciled to your will and always to be willing to fulfill it. Give us grace to be willing to be used in whatever service, small or great in the eyes of the world, indeed small or great in the eyes of the Church. Help us to have a heart for those who are now far distant from God, even in a far-off land spiritually, and we may have them as near as in our own homes and families. We pray that the grace that we have found may be a grace that they find too, and that the Lord who sent the word to ourselves will send the word to them. And may there be those even in our midst today who would recognize that irrespective of background of past, past history and experience, that the Lord can be their Saviour too. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen. Our last uh, singing is again in a psalm that we sang recently, I think maybe just a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 87. But again, it's uh, difficult to avoid singing because of how applicable it is to this man and to the grace of God. Psalm 87. Psalm 87 at verse 3. And uh, these glorious things are said here. These are prophecies that are spoken concerning the Church of Christ, the city of the Lord, which seemed so exclusively Jewish. Verse 4, Rahab. That's that's a, a code name for Egypt, really. And Babel, Babylon. I to those that know me will record. Now these were these were not just foreign cities, but sometimes very hostile cities to the people of God. And that includes Tyre as well, saturated with its own wealth. And with it the land of Palestine, the land of the Philistine. And likewise, ah oh, well here we are, an Ethiopian. This man was born. Therein, and it of Sion shall be said that this man and that man there was born. Someone remarked to me recently after we sang this psalm how God cares for the individual. This man and that man there was born, and he that is most high shall establish it. The last four stanzas, let's stand to sing them.